Good morning. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. I got to tell you a quick story from, uh, from the 9 o'clock service today. Um, I came walking up, and the very first thing I did when I stepped out was to step on my shoelace and pull it off to the side. And I spent the entire um, 45, 50, 60 minutes preaching that we're in for today. It's not going to go that long. Relax. I spent the whole time with my shoe falling off and thinking that I was going to trip. So if I look a little jittery up here or a little unsure of myself, my confidence a little bit shot because of what happened before. But you guys can help me out with that by like being really engaging and a lot of, a lot of agreement and nodding and occasionally. Man, that would be fantastic. Thank you. I'm feeling better already. Hey, we're continuing our series called Under the Sun. It's out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you remember, the Solomon's kind of going through all of life's experiences, cataloging them, and he's trying to find where's the meaning, where's the value, where is the significance in this life that we're living. He kind of says, he's, he's looking at life here under the sun, the life that we live here on earth, as if that's the only thing. And he's asking the question, can I find anything that brings value, meaning, and significance to the things? And so he starts looking around at the various options. And last week, Laurel talked about accomplishments and how Solomon accomplished a whole bunch of stuff, but he didn't find it all that fulfilling. But we know that God can give us a God-sized dream, and we can accomplish things uh, if we'll follow his plan. We can accomplish things that matter. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about a, a different area of human experience that Solomon pursued and that he investigated, and that's pleasure. Which, I mean, wouldn't it be great if the, I mean, if, it, if we could say, hey, the real meaning, the real value, the significance of life, the reason that we're here is simply to experience as much pleasure and joy and beauty as we possibly can. And that's where you'll find the greatest fulfillment ever. Like, if that's true, that's great news, and I would want to know about that, right? It would, it would you know, enough of all this troublesome stuff like, moderation, self-control. Let's just go have fun, right? If that's the way you go. So Solomon is looking for that. And he says, um, I think I'm going to go look. I'm going to go see if that's the place. And so here's how he describes uh, the journey that he's on. He says, I said to myself, come now, and I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But he said that also proved to be meaningless. He, Laughter, I said, that's what it is, is madness. And what, after all, does pleasure accomplish? I tried, he says, cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind was still guiding me with wisdom, he claims. He <laughs> says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. I'm just going to find out where should people be spending their time, where should people be spending their energies uh, during the days that God has given them on this earth, and I'm going to investigate pleasure. That's that's the journey that he was on, and that's the one we're looking at today. He was actually investigating a, uh, a philosophy that's come to be known as hedonism, the idea that, that value and meaning is found in the pursuit of pleasure, while at the same time minimizing pain. And the more pleasure you uh, experience and the less pain, the, and the more pain you avoid, you're going to be in great shape. Your life will take on great significance. This was not new to Solomon by any stretch of the imagination. And if you go back in human history as far as you can to the kind of the earliest written records uh, from the Babylonian Empire, we have the Epic of Gilgamesh. You probably had to read that somewhere around ninth grade and were as, as bored with it as I was. But right in the middle of something that old, there's a guy popping up and saying, hey, the meaning of life is to be found in pleasure, and that's the pursuit to which everyone should set their hands. It's that old, but it didn't stop there. And pretty much every generation and every empire and every civilization has had their own version 
of hedonism. Their own statement at some point or the other says the best good that man could hope to achieve and to experience is the good of personal pleasure, enjoyment, and satisfaction. Uh, and people come at that idea from lots of different places, I suppose. Some people come at that from a real happy, kind of joyful, hopeful kind of a place where they go, look, I really do want to find the meaning of life, and I want to get to the place where I find it most richly and most fully, and, and, I, and maybe I can find it there, and so that's why they pursue pleasure. Other people take an entirely uh, different kind of an approach, and it's just like this uh, wanton, debauched, I'm going to have as much pleasure as I can. I don't care who gets in my way, I'm going to knock them out of my way. There are no rules that will guide me. There are no barriers that will stop me. You can take your personal expectations of me and shove them somewhere where you don't want to mess with them because I am going to have fun. Get out of my way. And then other people are just, I think, find themselves more coming from a depressed place. The depressed place that looks and says, along with Solomon, gosh, if you take God out of the picture, if you just set aside any notion of eternity or the hereafter or anything spiritual, and you say that all that exists is what's here under the sun, if that's all there is, then I suppose it does make sense just to pursue as much pleasure as you can, get as much fun out of your 70, 80 years of life as you can, and then be done and perish with your memories, which is kind of depressing, right? It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a joy-filled uh, approach at all. And, and they all kind of hold all of those approaches to hedonism, hold this thing in common that, again, because, we're, because there's only this life, you should pursue everything you can now and enjoy it to the best of your possibilities, come what may. So we get the uh, a saying and a quote that's pretty common that we should, what, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Which is kind of a biblical, it's actually kind of a biblical idea from the right perspective. Because, I mean, Solomon himself, as he goes to chapter 8 in Ecclesiastes, has this to say. He says, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be glad. I mean, make sure you understand, hear that phrase, under the sun. In this world, there, if that's all there is, there's not a lot better than to eat and to drink and to be glad. And Isaiah possibly had, had heard that phrase because he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so our society has kind of mashed those two together into one quippy saying that we remember. And it's okay and it's fine, but gosh, it is just a little bit depressing. And so Solomon says, I'm going to investigate this. He goes, like, in the pursuit of pleasure, he says, pleasure is one of the things that might bring meaning. I'm not going to investigate it a little bit. I'm going to investigate it a lot. I am going all in on pleasure. If there is meaning and value and significance to be found in the pursuit of pleasure, Solomon says, I'm going to find it. In fact, there's, here's how he describes the search. He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired, and I refused my heart no pleasure. And the thing you've got to remember as he's saying that is this. Solomon was a man of worldwide influence and power. Like, there was nobody that could compete with him in power and influence. And he was, he was as rich as you could be at that time in the world. Uh, uh, he, unlimited influence, unlimited resources, okay? 
So like if I said, hey, I'm gonna dedicate the rest of my life to going out and having as much fun as I can, well, as much fun as I can is kind of limited by the resources that I have, okay? Kind of includes like the, you know, the North Spokane area generally, and then after that I'm gonna be tapped out. <laughs> but Solomon, Solomon could, could, could pursue this extensively, a long way, and, and he could just, he could take, take this as far as he wanted to. He wasn't, lim he wasn't limited by resources, he had them all. So when he talks about like I'm making, I made my heart merry with wine, he's not slugging buck back two buck chuck and chasing it down with a Coors Light. <laughs> right, he's, he's getting the good stuff. He's importing wine from countries that they haven't even discovered yet, right? He's just, he's getting the best of the best as he pursues that. And that's, that's kind of who Solomon was. Solomon was like this over the top extreme kind of guy. His, his life motto may have been Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> you resonate, I get that, absolutely. We got, a, we got a budding Solomon up here in row two. Ushers, keep an eye on him. So yeah, he's over the top. Like, so he, he built the temple, right? For all the generations before in Israel's history, they kind of carried around the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments and this little kind of tent-like contraption on, on sticks. It wasn't so inspiring and Solomon says enough of that. If we're going to honor God with a temple, we're going to do it right. And so he raised enormous amounts of money uh, from the public, and he built this phenomenal, extensive temple to the Lord, one that historians say was probably up to that point in human history the most expensive building project that had ever been taken on. And it was beautiful, but it was certainly over the top. It was extreme. And look at his, I mean, look at his family life. Laurel mentioned last uh, week, 700 wives. Boggle the mind, right? Figure that one out. But it doesn't stop there. It's 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so like he built a big palace and I get it. You're gonna need some space. But it's not just even like the relational dynamics of, of having 700 wives and 300 concubines. I gotta, I'm impressed with the simple mathematics of it. So if you take every day and you break it into three equal eight-hour periods, and then you assign one wife or one concubine to each of those eight-hour periods, the man could go 11 months and never see the same person twice. <laughs> the man's an overdoer. The man's an overachiever. And, and he put that kind of energy, that kind of limitless resource and limitless power towards the pursuit of pleasure, trying to seek meaning. I say all of that to say, if meaning and value and significance uh, were not found in pleasure, it wasn't for a lack of trying. He took that, he rode that horse as far as it can be ridden, and let's look at his summary of that experience. He says, yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. Isn't that interesting? Like, even just under the sun, even in the here and now, all that pursuit of pleasure didn't deliver everything that it seemed to promise that it would. And trying to grab a hold of the meaning and the value of that, it was like without substance, like air. It just, it couldn't be held onto. And I mean, 
whatever your age, fast forward from where you are now to the end of your life. So for some of you, that's a longer journey than for some of us. But picture yourself looking back and how tragic it would be to say, yeah, nothing much was gained. For all the efforts I made, for all the uh, pursuit that I, I put my heart into, nothing much was gained. What a, what a loss that would be. But Solomon came to the conclusion that where pleasure is concerned, I can, per can pursue it as far as it goes, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of my power. <laughs> I'm going to take that as an amen. <laughs> he says, the pleasure didn't produce and fulfill the promise it seemed to hold. And why is that? Because that's not just Solomon's lone uh, experience. Isn't that the experience of all of us? I think the reason Solomon was so dissatisfied at the end of all that pursuit of pleasure was simply this. There, there, actually, there are three things about pleasure that lead it to not fulfill its promises. And the first one of this, you, you'll have heard it before, uh, it's the, the law of diminishing returns, right? That idea that something that has super high impact when you first encounter it, you go, that's awesome, I want more of that. And then the more of it you get, the more used to it you become. And what you get doesn't produce the same effect. So you go, it consume more and get less. And then you consume more and get less. I remember the first hit of coffee I ever had. That thing lit me up and I was bouncing <laughs> off the walls. It was awesome. Now I'm guzzling it by the gallons, nothing. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. My daughter loves sunsets. She finds them beautiful. She takes great joy. She, she receives great pleasure from sunsets. In fact, I think I got a photo here of her enjoying a sunset and other activities, I suppose. <laughs> but come on, they're adorable, right? Okay, so just to make sure they weren't too adorable, I, I went down and made sure, go ahead, let's roll the next one, made sure it wasn't too adorable. <laughs> I think every young couple needs to know that dad is just right there outside the frame, if you know what I'm talking about. She loves sunsets that bring her pleasure. And now, while she's down at school, she works at a restaurant on the beach, literally. She stands there with her feet in the sand at the hostess booth, looking out over the Pacific Ocean as the sun sets every night. So when we were down there in December, from our house, I took, I took this photo of a sunset. That's not doctored or anything. It's just a fabulous, incredible sunset. Took my breath away. And when Kendra came home from work and she stopped by, I said, did you see the sunset tonight? She goes, nah. How can you not enjoy that? How can you not just be enthralled that you love sunsets? Dad, see them every night. No big deal. <laughs> That's the law of diminishing returns. That, that pleasure, whatever it was, the, the legitimate pleasures of friendship and being with people that we love and care about, the pleasures that are legitimate and, and good things in our life, that if we look to them to be the exclusive source of meaning, initially they're great. And then we get used to them. And they become commonplace. And then eventually we don't even notice them. Because that's the way pleasure works. That's how addictions get formed, right? Oh, I, I used this substance, fill in the blank, right? 
And all of a sudden, the troubles seemed to melt away, and I, had to, I was in this state, and everything was okay, and I want to be there again. So I'm going to have a little more of that substance, but that little more doesn't produce the same effect, and so I consume even more, and that produces even less effect, and eventually I'm on this endless cycle, and I can't get out of it. Because the law of diminishing returns says that the pursuit of pleasure will never, ever provide the fulfillment that we're looking for. Solomon found that to be true. Solomon found that to be the case. And at the end of his life, looking back, he says, yeah, it didn't work out so well. It's not the only reason. Uh, there's another reason as well, and it's uh, that, uh, that pleasure just doesn't deliver on its promise, and it's this. Um, you and I were designed to live for something larger than ourselves. God didn't create us simply to make us feel good or for us to enjoy the ride. That's a diminished view of why God made us. Deep within our hearts, sometimes in places that we know about and others that we're just searching for, we know it to be true that we've been made for a purpose that extends outside of ourselves and extends to be the benefit towards others. And we know this to be true because the scripture says we're created in the image of God, right? We're created in the image of God. So before there was a creation, before there was a heaven and an earth and a universe or anything, there was just God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in a holy unity and community of identity, together. A glorious, eternal, perfect existence. And they said, it's not enough just to be us. We want to create something for them. Like, the ultimate expression of a God who is love was to say, I'm going to do something for others. And he created a universe, and he created a world, and he created a planet and creatures and humans to enjoy one another, to enjoy the world he had created, and ultimately to enjoy the God who had created them. That's our design. That's our, that the God in whose image we are made is a God who created for the benefit of others. And as a result, we will never be fulfilled. We will never achieve anything like our potential or experience anything like our full meaning until, like the God in whose image we're made, we are creating for the good and for the benefit of others. And anything less than that will be unfulfilling. That was Satan's temptation in the garden, right? Creation hadn't actually happened for very long before there's Eve in the garden. And up to that moment, her experience had been a uh, relationship uh, with Adam and relationship with God. No sense particularly of how great this was for her, just existing and enjoying. And the serpent points out the fruit and says, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? That'd be good for eating. You'd probably love that. And I know God said some other stuff, but really, don't you think that your pleasure and your enjoyment of that should trump what's been said? Right? And at the, minute, the moment that she said yes, the moment that her existence got focused on meeting kind of her desires and her needs rather than just sharing in the good life that was ordered for others, it all began to crumble. We're designed for something more than our own satisfaction. We're built for something more than just our own pleasure. And when we lose sight of that and begin living as if we're the end of our own existence, we will not be satisfied. We know underneath the current of it all that we're living beneath our calling and we're living 
beneath our identity. So Solomon understood the law of diminishing returns. And Solomon also understood that he was created for something more than just the experience of pleasure. But there's another truth in there, and I think it comes to play as well. And that is that excessive pursuit of pleasure, that is the pursuit of pleasure beyond appropriate boundaries, it's not just a mistake, it's not just potentially problematic, it's not just that, oh yeah, I guess I could go a little too far and there would be some consequences, no. The pursuit of pleasure is inherently a trap. It's inherently enslaving. And the Apostle Paul knew this when he was writing to the churches. He says, writing, he says, at one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. And listen, and we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and enslaved by all kinds of pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul understood that it was inherently an enslaving nature of those kinds of pleasures. He, said, he says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He said, look, we were deceived. We were broken, and we were enslaved by our passions and this need for pleasure. They owned us. We couldn't get out. We were stuck on the hamster wheel trying to chase down that next high, that next release of pleasure or whatever it may be, right? And, and Paul points out that's what Jesus came to save us from. Jesus cared enough about us to come and to die on the cross, to die an excruciating death specifically so that you and I would not have to be enslaved to those passions and to those pursuits and to those pleasures. Let me just ask about you and right where you are right here today as we sit, as we talk about this. Maybe you're one who has in the past or, or maybe right now you know what it is. You're in the middle of battling a sense of being enslaved to pleasure, to passion, to a particular pursuit. It may be, it may be a relationship that... Um, that you know is not right, but it brings you some measure of pleasure that you say, I, I just can't say no. It can be a substance that you abuse or misuse. It can be a circumstance. It can be all kinds of things. But you know that feeling when you know that something is not right? I am supposed to get rid of this, and I just can't. My friends, my family, everyone who loves me says, you, you need to stop. We see that this is a danger area for you. And in your heart, you agree with them. But, but the prospect of weighing it down is just too intimidating. And maybe you've sought professional help on that. Maybe you set a date on a calendar and said, on this date, I'm going to stop and no more. I'm pulling the trigger on that one. Somehow you arrive at the morning with the date on the calendar and you realize, no, nah, I don't think I have what it takes. If I'm honest, I have to say, it owns me. I'm a slave. I can't get out from under it. So Paul says it's going to happen when the pursuit of pleasure becomes our be-all and our end-all. And the good news is, it does, it, it's not just an issue of we need more willpower to get out from under it, right? No, Christ died and was raised in power from the dead so that you and I don't have to remain slaves to those things that enslave us. 
It's not dependent upon our own willpower or somehow getting better treatment or getting stronger or anything else. It's about laying it down and saying, Jesus, I am powerless on my own. I need your strength, not mine, to get me out from underneath this. But let's not forget what got us there. It was the reckless pursuit of pleasure in, a, in, a, in another moment. It doesn't have to be that way. Pleasure doesn't perform on this promise of fulfillment. It doesn't provide the significance we want. It doesn't. Law of diminishing returns, our, the sense that we've been designed for something greater than just ourselves. It enslaves us if we let it, but God will set us free. Thank heaven for that. So what do we do today? What do we do about that? What, what practical steps are there for moving forward? I want to say it probably depends on what kind of person you are. There, I want to talk to kind of a, two different groups of people so you kind of fit yourself in wherever you belong and stuff. But the, the one is the group of people who would say, yeah, if I'm honest, when it comes right down to it, maybe, maybe I want to, but historically, I haven't really obeyed God. I've kind of said, yeah, God, what you want and what I want are different, and I'm going to do it my way. And there's a couple versions of that. There's the, there's the fist in the face, God, you can't make me do any, anything, go away. And, and that's real. There's also the uh, kind of the more polite, respectful version it says, oh, no, God, I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to do my best to follow you all the way up into the point where what you want for me is not what I want for me. And, and then I'm not going to obey anymore. Those are two versions of essentially the same thing that say I don't really want to obey. I'd rather pursue my own pleasure. And if you're, you find yourself in that camp, I just want to say there's a lesson to be had from Moses. Moses grew up in the, in the palace of the Pharaoh. He had access to every privilege, every pleasure that was available the life of luxury, right? But he looked out off the palace porch to see his people, the people of God, being oppressed and forced into slavery and into slave labor. And he had a difficult choice to make about whether to remain in a place of comfort and pleasure and peace or to identify with the people of God. The writer to the Hebrews describes his decision this way. It says that he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And if you're one of those who says, yeah, I've been choosing my own pleasure over God's plan, you, you, that's the choice that you are making, to remain in the palace with the fleeting pleasures of sin, which will not promise, or to, to choose to identify yourself with the people of God, even if that's painful, even if that's difficult, even if it's uncomfortable. The fleeting pleasures, which are ensnaring and enslaving, inherently captivating, or to identify with the people of God for a short term of what may be difficult and uncomfortable, but which God will bring to amazing significance as you move forward. There's another group of people probably I, I, I want to talk to as well. And, and these are those, maybe you've actually done a pretty good job following God with your life, and maybe you've been a Christian for quite a while, maybe not so long. but. You've really stepped up and said, no, I, I think I'm convinced I really want to try and I want to do my best to live my life God's way. I, I don't want just my own pleasure and everything to drive me. I want, I want to do it God's way. And I, I just want to ask the question and to check, check your motive on that. I know and I talk to a lot of people who say, oh, of course I follow God. Of course I follow Jesus. And the reason that I do is everyone told me he's promised things will all be better which is really just another version of chasing the pursuit of pleasure, like to the eternal conclusion, right? 
Now, truth be told, if you spend your life following Jesus and submitting your life to his plans, your life will be better, both here under the sun and in the great beyond. I'm with you on that one. But I'm not talking about the, the end game. I'm talking about your motive right here and now. Do you live your spiritual life with the understanding that there is a threshold level of pleasure and stability that you're willing to live with, and that so long as God provides that or above, you'll happily follow him because he deserves it. But woe to him if he doesn't provide me that threshold level of pleasure and stability because if he's not willing to support me at that level, I'm out of here. Talk to a lot of people who when the dark times and the hard times hit, they jettison their faith and they run from God. And I wanna say this, it's not because they're soft, it's not because they're weak and it's not because they're shallow. I think it's because we've presented the kingdom of God as a self-help project rather than an act of worship. I think when we say, hey, the reason that you should bow before the almighty God is because your life will be better, I think we set people up for the disappointments that happen when my life's not better yet. I want to suggest that for many of us, we may want to rethink that, rethink that in advance of getting to that place. To confront our own motives and say, hey, am I, am I pursuing God because I'm satisfied with his level of customer service? And if he fails to meet those, am I gonna switch brains? Because if that's where our heart is, I will tell you, it's just a matter of time. God loves you too much to let you keep living in that kind of deceived state. He's gonna bring you to a point where you have to, you have to rely on him. Let's be ready for that ahead of time or make it unnecessary by simply saying, God, you are the God of the universe. You don't hop to my commands and you're not um, required to meet my expectations. I worship you because you are Lord. And then, and then when as Lord, you provide a level of stability and pleasure and, uh, and you meet my expectations far enough, I will happily worship you. And when life's difficult and hard and it's not meeting up to my expectations, I'm gonna worship you there too and trust that you're gonna come meet me in that place. I will tell you that if we live that way, if we understand our faith in that way, if we worship our God that way, there is nothing that can stop us. And we will find ultimately that our quest for pleasure has moved away from the realm of what pleases me and will have shifted our life to one of what pleases him. And that's actually the homework I wanna give you for this coming week. In three categories of your life, I wanna ask you to shut down your sense of pleasing self and to engage your sense of serving and pleasing others. The first one is in your relationship with God this week. As you spend time, whether it's listening to worship music or praying or reading your Bible or whatever it is that you do to connect with God, in those moments this week, can I just encourage you to take this week and say, hey, for this week, I'm just gonna say, God, I'm gonna come with the approach of God, what pleases you? I'm not gonna obsess on what I'm getting out of it or whether I feel better about it or whether I feel more empowered or whether I feel more encouraged. I'm just saying, God, I'm here to serve and to bless and to honor you. I'm gonna worship you because it pleases you, not because of what I get out of it. A little irony is you're gonna get way more out of it than ever before, but just keep your focus there. Then I want you to do the same thing with regard to your closest human relationship, a spouse, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, family member, wherever that is. We tend to look to that person to make our life better. We, turn, we, we evaluate the relationship in terms of what am I getting out of it? 
Are they doing for me what I need to have done? Will you consciously turn that around this week in that relationship? And so I'm going to focus this week on asking the question, what do they need and what can I do for them? I'm going to set aside my old, set aside my own quest for pleasure in that relationship and say, what would be pleasing to them? How can I serve them? What would set them up well to succeed? And then whatever it is, this is the third category, whatever it is you do at work, at the job, in the office, if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're a student, whatever it is that would cons constitute your work day, right? And go about that in a way that's, that looks not to just how fulfilling it is for you, not just how much knowledge you're acquiring at school, not just how much you're accomplishing and earning, but to say, this is a week where I'm going to work to see others succeed, to bless them in their efforts, to serve the people who are under my care, to make life better for them rather than to just evaluate it based on how did it impact me. I promise you, if you'll do those things, you're going to have a week that may be one of your best in recent memory because you're going to be embracing this path that rejects the pursuit of pleasure as the highest and best good and says, no, there's something else out there. There's something different that's in line with how God created me, that's in keeping with how he designed me, and it's actually able to fulfill on that promise of significance and value and meaning here under the sun and eternally as well. Let's go ahead and pray. And God, I want to pray for all of us. Um, would you, um, in those three categories I just mentioned, God, would you bring the people to mind so that we know exactly who we're talking about? And God, this week... Um, would you capture our imagination with ways to serve? Would you, would you turn us inside out and allow us to find pleasure in seeing others blessed rather just, than just in being blessed ourselves? And our heart's desire, Lord, is, is that in doing, it, doing all this, you, by your Holy Spirit, change us and transform us. God, would you make us those who are no longer content just to seek the next high and the next pleasurable moment, but Lord, would you help us to find all of our pleasure in you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we thank you so much for finding North Church Sermons Online, and we hope that the message today brought value and enrichment to your life. If you'd like to participate in the giving of this ministry, there's a couple of easy ways for you to do that. You can text the word NORTH to 77977 and receive a text back and get your online giving set up in under 60 seconds. Or else you can visit us online at northchurch.net and click on Give Online and participating in the things that God's doing right here at North Church. We thank you so much for joining us. God bless.